morning everyone again we're going to pick up on nehemiah rebuilding a city and we'll look at this uh today's sermon last week we were looking at the context uh, this week we're looking at the foundation of prayer there's rebuilding rebuilding a city we've seen the broad theme is the rebuilding of a nation by the rebuilding of a city and uh and so today we look at one of the most fundamental foundations when you want to rebuild anything in God, and that is the foundation of prayer. We have three, remember just uh, as we look back, three great leaders of this post-exile restoration period. So Rubbable who returns and rebuilds the temple. Then about 80 years later, Ezra who returns, and he reinstates the teaching and preaching and the book of the law. And then we have Nehemiah who comes eight years later, um, so they were obviously contemporaries, and he rebuilds the wall and repopulates the city. That's the fee, uh, basically the covering. And what we saw last week is that the context is huge. So when Zerubbabel comes and there's a temple, the first thing they do is restore the place of communion, fellowship, sacrifice, and the altar of God. Before they've done anything, the altar of God is rebuilt. But remember that Nehemiah is not so much devastated because the people weren't, in our language, in church or reading the Bible. Those things had already been put in place. Why did he mourn? Why was he so broken when he got the news? He was devastated that in spite of worship and in spite of the word of God, the city itself was still in ruins. Now, this is not a reflection of kind of Jewish nationalism or, or, or that kind of thing. He is devastated because their practice of faith is making no real difference in the conditions of the lives of the people, especially the kinds of conditions that were anticipated by Moses when he wrote the law of Israel. These gates and walls, just a quick reminder, were essential for protection, for justice, for economic access, for sanctuary. So that was our setting. Let's dive into Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 1 again, um, but this time we'll go through the whole chapter. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev of the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers or kinsmen, came from Judah with some other men. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, said Nehemiah, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites 
including myself and my father's family. Notice the solidarity, the connection between peoples have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly uh, towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Verse 8. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. He's so aware of what God anticipates and wants for his people as revealed in the word that is being restored. And this is what there was there. Verse 8 again. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my command, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to this prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering, honoring your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. That's what Nehemiah says. So we want to look at this. Nehemiah knows there's a great deal of rebuilding that needs to take place. And the first point of my sermon is this, that Nehemiah's first foundation of rebuilding a city is the foundation of prayer. Remember, this context desperately calls for action. These people have been praying, offering sacrifices, but when he hears the news, his first action is four months of prayer. That's the time lapse between chapter 1 and chapter 2. And the foundation Nehemiah knows he must lay in his own life is that of seeking the Lord in this thing. And this balances our main point from last week. Just because Nehemiah was heartbroken by the fact that the prayers and sacrifices were not seeing changes to the city structures, does not mean that he goes, oh, well, this prayer thing is jolly useless. He knows that the pattern is right. He knows that you start with the altar of prayer. He doesn't want that discarded. In fact, in his own mind, he lays down as he senses a stirring in his heart. The, he lays down the foundation of prayer. There's the altar. There's the temple. There's the ministry of the word. And yes, they come first. And so he doesn't jump into some kind of empty activism and throw out the prayer. He builds an altar of prayer. Why? Why? <laughs> Why prayer as this foundation? Well, given his context, the first thing we can say about why prayer is that it is a place for him to grieve and mourn. He, he's shocked by the news. He had, he had so expected a different outcome. And he enters a process of compound grief as he has to wrestle with all that uh, has and hasn't happened. What is, what is missing? Wrestle with the implications. He had so hoped there was a, a different space. 
And so he knows there's deep work to do in this place of pain. And he knows that he needs time with God to sort it all out. And so for some days he literally just sat there, almost immobilized, stunned. And as I'm meeting with people and we're starting to process grief both from within the church and beyond the church and outside of our community and outside of even our country, people affected. It's not weird. It's not wrong to, to feel absolutely stunned. And you, you kind of ride on the back of your feet and it could knock you right over. And in a sense, Nehemiah's on the floor. He just, he just sits on the ground in the Jewish form of mourning. You see, prayer is a place for us to grieve, for us to mourn when we hear these kinds of news. But prayer is also a place for Nehemiah to find guidance. He knows, he senses, he stirs up one I want wisdom. I want understanding. I, I want an effective response. This can't stay this way. I'm pretty convinced that when he started these four months, he didn't know what to do. He didn't have a plan all neatly worked out in his mind. And you know, if I time this prayer, the actual prayer words, it takes about 90 seconds, 100 seconds to read it. He didn't pray really slowly or pray the same prayer a hundred times over during that time. This prayer that we've got is, as it were, what emerged out of that. It became the prayer that captured in words the season of his whole soul. And so when he starts in this loss and shock and mourning, slowly, well, he actually takes his very grief and uncertainty and turns that into another offering to God. Some of us during this time, some of the things we're facing, you need to learn that it's okay to take your confusion and turn that into prayer. Even if your prayer is this, God, I don't know how to pray right now. Please teach me how to pray. I don't know what to do right now. Please show me what to do. And just pray that again and again until something starts to shift as you trust in him. Explore. Don't think you can't pray just because you don't know exactly how to pray right now. Who of us knows? And thank God for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 says, he prays through us when we can't even find the words. So just let your spirit make contact with him. And just say, Jesus, I'm here and I'm in your presence. And let the spirit pray for you and through you. Sometimes with groans that words just can't express. And in fact, when we're in that place, this is probably when we most need to pray. So prayer is a place to grieve and mourn. It's a place out of which direction will come. And, and Nehemiah prays, see, because he knows he needs God. You see, prayer is a declaration of dependence. After last week's sermon in which we kind of looked at what's the main setting, and it's this thing that a city must be rebuilt. 
And, and we can't just say, well, it's great, we've got prayer and we've got the Bible and we're doing fine. We must look at the impact that we have as the people of God on the community around us. And, and, and I got a call in which somebody said, Craig, do you not realize how tough it is just to pray and open your Bible right now? I know it's tough. There have been times in the last few weeks where I myself have had to dig so deep. And rebuilding a city, rebuilding Cape Town as a place of protection and justice and economic access for all just feels way too much to ask. It's hard enough just to rebuild my own broken heart. Nehemiah feels the same way. And his prayer is an expression of his need of God, of his dependence, of his trust, of his hope. And as he prays, somewhere in those months, he senses he is meant to play a meaningful part in turning around this thing that's breaking his heart. And so yes, something really important when you when you start to pray and you realize how dependent you are. This is really important, guys. Every assignment from God is going to feel impossible. It's meant to. If it's a God assignment, it's not meant to be something that we can do in our own strength and with our own resources. The task must be bigger than us. You see, we're meant to need God and rely on Him utterly. As the Apostle Paul wrote, in the context of receiving comfort from the God of all comfort that we might comfort others. A little bit later, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, he describes an unnamed situation. And he says this, if it was far beyond our ability to endure. We couldn't do it. Bottom line. No, no ways. This was far beyond us, far beyond our ability. We, we didn't even feel like we could endure, like we could survive. It felt too much. And then he says this. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves. We might not rely on ourselves. But on God who raises the dead. So prayer is this place to process more grief. Yes, it's a place to worship and celebrate. We see that emerge in his prayer. It's also a, pray, a, a place for us to reposition ourselves and find direction. But supremely it's a place in which we unlock our dependence upon God in a way that does not immobilize us because of the things that are bigger than us, but it gives us access to and energizes us because we're now in contact with the one who's bigger than everything. And that now takes us to the prayer itself. Now, there are many beautiful and important things about this prayer. I'm not going to do a line-by-line -line sermon on the prayer. But one of the most remarkable things about the prayer, you see, 
the prayers that emerge during the exile have a almost like a unique flavor. And there's so many other prayers and psalms from the exile. And, and you will see that, that this prayer is different. I mean, different. It's not that what came before was wrong. It's just there is a progression. Theologians call this progressive revelation, meaning that in the story of Scripture, we can recognize growth, not just of understanding, but God himself is increasingly revealing himself. And this, of course, supremely climaxes in the person of Jesus Christ himself, in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so there is, as it were, theological progress. Why? Because more about God is being learned. And that's what I really want to zero in. Let me show you two of these things that were different for Nehemiah than, say, 120, 130 years before when the exiles first were carried off. The first thing Nehemiah discovers is that God is not landlocked. Nehemiah describes the Lord, Yahweh, as the God of heaven. I prayed to the God of heaven and I said, Yahweh, God of heaven. He realizes, like Daniel, that God is not landlocked. Daniel, another person who lived through one of the middle periods of the exile. You see, Israel had essentially come to limit God to Palestine. All the nations around sort of like believed that gods were territorial. Now, the interesting thing is, there is an element in which the spiritual realm is territorial. But Yahweh, the Lord himself, is so much bigger than any power, principality, or authority. But Israel had locked into this kind of territorial God theology. And so they prayed to the God of Israel, the Lord of Zion, to, to the God who ruled from the temple and who was present in the temple. And when Israel first came into exile, they could not think of any songs or prayers that could, according to Psalm 137, be meaningful in this strange land. How can we sing the Lord's song in this strange land? Why? Because God was landlocked in their theology. God was in Jerusalem and in the temple back in Palestine. But as you look at Daniel, and then you get to Zerubbabel, and then you get to Ezra, and now we get to Nehemiah, we see a new description for God as one of the most common titles in the exile. And so when Daniel has to pray and interpret a dream to Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king of the Babylonians, God gives him an interpretation, and Daniel realizes, God is speaking to me in Babylon. He's not stuck in Palestine. He's not in captivity. He has not been uh, defeated. He has not surrendered his throne. He is the sovereign Lord of all because he is the God of heaven. He is Lord over all the land and all the people and all the kings. And so Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and Darius will begin to speak of Yahweh as the God of heaven who has authority over every land mass, over every person, over every king. And most often when this title is used in this kind of context, it is in the context of dealing with an authority or a ruler 
or a king, and it's recognizing even if I am stuck in a strange land, God is not. He is here. He is ruling. He can be trusted in this place of loss and deprivation and exile and captivity. God has not changed. My circumstances have, but he is totally, totally the God who made himself known uh, to Abraham, who made himself known through the Exodus, who took us into the promised land, gave us our greatest kings ever. This God has not changed. Explore, never let your circumstances rob you of the certainty of the nature of God. And now since Jesus, we don't have progressive revelation anymore. God's given us the supreme final word on who he is. But let's be careful that our theology does not slip back to thinking that there are circumstances and places and contexts and times that actually just faith is naive and it's not going to work. No, faith is not naive. Why? Because we don't have faith in faith. We have faith in God. And he is the God of heaven. I think it's a pretty cool point. And the second one is, and it emerges from this, God has not faith. You see, at the beginning of the exile, we read of the trauma and the confusion of the Lord's people. Now, Psalm 44 uh, is probably the pinnacle of this crisis of faith revealed in prayer. I'm going to read it briefly. Verse 9, for example, says, But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. This is... You know, the sons of Korah, objecting to the Lord that, that they're losing. And he says, you made us retreat before the enemy. Our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up like devoured sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance and you gained nothing from the sale. And then this incredibly, in spite of a whole bunch of stuff in the rest of Scripture, they say, all this has come upon us, although we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to the covenant. What on earth is he saying? He's saying, God, you've been false to the covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet have not strayed from the path. But you have crushed us, made us a mournful jackal. You've covered us with deep darkness. And towards the end of the prayer, he said, wake up, God. That's how he feels. Get up. Why are you sleeping? And the psalm has no redemptive space, in a sense, apart from a cry. And this is what the exiles, in a sense, some of them were feeling. God, you've failed us. What did we do wrong? Why have you disowned us? I don't understand. Now, when you read the meta-narrative, the big story of the Bible, you almost got to say, if you don't understand progressive revelation, how on earth did this get into the Bible? Let me say two things, just about Psalm 44. None of our prayers are perfect. We all have to start from where we are. And Nehemiah probably had to do the same. We get the end result of his prayer. There must have been some really tough moments of heart searching in which he presented a similar kind of cry to God. And, and we can only pray from where we are. 
The second thing is, I believe it's included to help us map the change of heart and thinking that was needed in Israel and the people of God for, as it were, the restoration to take place. You see, this psalm seemingly ignores the warnings of Moses in Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30, etc., Repeated in the temple prayer of Solomon. Solomon anticipated the exile if people didn't turn from God. And hammered home again and again by the other prophets, especially Jeremiah and Micah. And they warned, keep covenant. You will lose your inheritance if you don't. And Jeremiah in particular, chapter 7, warns Judah um, against their temple theology. In which temple theology was, God lives in the temple. God is the biggest God of all. So obviously nothing can happen to the temple. And you know, Jerusalem guards the temple and Israel guards Jerusalem. So nothing's going to go wrong for us. We can live as we like. We can do what we please. Why? Because we've actually got control of God. And they believe that God could not allow anything bad to happen to them. And so they lived as they liked. And Jeremiah and Micah, Micah warns that, listen, Jerusalem will be plowed up like a field because of your lousy theology. Repent. And then Nehemiah recognizes the promises of God that you can return from exile if you will return to me. And so Nehemiah goes and he, and he sends praise one of the promises of God in Deuteronomy 30, written by Moses, and he references this, and not directly, but indirectly. And let me read it, the first few verses from Deuteronomy 30. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and all your soul according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. And gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens. Directly from Nehemiah's prayer as well. From there the Lord your God will gather you up and bring you back. And so emphatically Nehemiah corrects the crisis of faith. That somehow thinks the blame is God's. That God has got it wrong. Nehemiah refuses the narrative that had so upset the exiles. They were saying, God, you have failed. And this brings us to, as it were, the very heartbeat of the prayer. It says, God, you have not failed. Your love is rock solid. Your covenant-keeping grace cannot be broken. You, God, are true. We are the ones who messed this thing up. And Nehemiah in his prayer says, I can't blame God. And it's not about blame. It's about accepting God's opportunity to come home. And he recognizes that's going to take confession and repentance. And so he identifies with the people. He recognizes himself inside his old theology. And he recognizes that old theology inside himself. And he says, God, I'm part of the problem. Me, myself, and my father's family. And, and these things do travel in our family spaces. These lousy theologies that blame God and don't know what to do in the midst of suffering. 
And so out of this season of suffering and loss comes a fresh picture of God. And out of this fresh picture of God, in his grief process comes confession, repentance, and personal readiness. Nehemiah is ready to hear the direction of God. You see, godly grieving is a gift. It is the gift of beginning again. We think that grieving is about things always ending and dying. It's just that one season is over. But godly grieving always contains the power to begin again. And so out of his refusal to blame God, out of his confession and his repentance, out of his solidarity and intercession with and for his people, his community, his family and himself, comes the grace to believe God for favor. Father God, grant me favor with this man. Why? Because he believes in the God who's going to enable him and enable a nation and enable a city to rebuild. They are going to begin again. So we want to take some time and think about this gift of beginning again and think about maybe some of the things that we've faced in the last while that would keep us from having a confidence in God that no matter what else is going on, God is able to help us begin again.